Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Peter Gurry on the amazing story of how we got our Bible, like William Tyndale's contributions. And in the letter, he is writing to a friend in this cold, dark prison in Europe, facing death, and he asks for two things to be sent to him. The first is warmer clothes, because it's cold. Mm -hmm. And the second is he asks for his Hebrew books, his Hebrew Bible, his Hebrew dictionary, and his Hebrew grammar, so that he can continue translating the Old Testament. He never did finish translating it. Peter Gurry, next. It's easy to take the Bible for granted. Always available and many versions in our language. Its history goes back thousands of years. Today we'll talk about how we got the Bible. My guest is Dr. Peter Gurry, who, along with Dr. John Mead, has written Scribes and Scripture, the amazing story of how we got the Bible. Both men co-direct the Text and Canon Institute at Phoenix Seminary, where they also teach. Dr. Gurry, how did you come to be so interested in the history and text of the Bible? Uh, it really started back in high school when I signed up to take a foreign language in high school, and my high school had two options. They had Spanish and Greek, and I never really liked doing what everybody else did. And so I thought, hey, I'll be weird and I'll sign up for Greek. I did that, and four years later, I had four years of Koine, or New Testament Greek, and I remember very vividly when, we, when, I, when I was given my first printed Greek New Testament as my textbook for that class. And I was fascinated to realize that there was, a, there was a Greek New Testament behind my English Bible. And that really set me on a trajectory of being interested ever since in the process and history of how we got the Bible. Because, you know, growing up, you just sort of think you, just, you have a Bible and you mm -hmm. just assume it's always looked that way. You know, it's always been in two columns. It's always had verse numbers and chapter headings <laughs> right. and all the rest. And you start to realize, well, actually, no, people in the past have read a Bible that looked pretty different. And so, yeah, it was just that, that, that fascination of how we got it. How influential is the Bible, obviously, in Christian circles, but how influential is it in today's world, and how influential has it been in history? I think particularly people that may not pay much attention to it don't realize. Yeah, I think it'd probably be impossible to underestimate how influential it's been. In world, more and more so around the world, of course, but certainly in the history of the West. Um, even today, where people are, I think it's fair to say, rejecting the Bible and its authority, even when someone says an atheist today, often the, the God they reject is the one they know from the Bible. You know, even if they don't know it that well, it's sort of in the ether, you might say. You know, anytime, if, if, anytime a politician wants to really sort of elevate their rhetoric, they almost always reach for a biblical reference. Uh, and, and sometimes they may not even know it's a biblical reference. <laughs> mm, yeah. And in some ways you might say that's the real mark of its influence, that we use it, we quote it, even when we don't realize that we are. Now, why did the two of you want to write this book, Scribes and Scripture, The Amazing Story of the Bible? What, what led you to do that? Well, it started a number of years ago when we first started the Text and Canon Institute, and what we realized was John, my co-author, had an expertise in the Old Testament side of things and on the canon, and I had an expertise on the New Testament side of things, and then have, have become a bit expert on, on translation. And we just looked around and realized that pretty simply that there weren't, wasn't another seminary in the U.S. that had two people in those that, that could cover all the bases, you know? 
And so we started the Institute, and with that, then we started speaking at churches on the subject of how we got the Bible. And what we found was, in the, in the course of four talks at churches, it was a lot of information for people to take in. And what we really wanted to do was, was repackage the same information in a format people could take with them and kind of go back over again and go, now, what did he say about the New mm. Testament canon? You know, what did he say about the Catholic Bible and why it's different? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. It's a big history. It's a long history. And there's a lot of details and a lot of figures in it, you know, important people, that sort of thing. And so it was really just a desire to present the information in a, in a format you could take with you. And you divide it up into, into basically three major sections or three major uh, points. Can, can you just kind of give us a quick overview yeah. and we can kind of dive into them? Yeah. And, I, and listeners should probably know that the way we thought about it was we tried to think, okay, how can we approach the Bible without taking anything about it for granted? <laughs> you know, mm. anything about its particular format. Let's ask every question. So the first part of the book deals with the text of the Bible, how it was copied. And there we, we go all the way back even to the invention of the alphabet because we, again we don't want to take anything for granted so how was it the case that there was even an alphabet and writing for the biblical authors to use then the second part of the book deals with the question of canon and that's why we have the books that we have and r- listeners may know that there are differences in the canon between the catholic church and protestants and then eastern orthodox as well and then the third part of the book deals with translation, and that's the part that's probably closest to home for people because that's the Bible we read. Most people read the Bible in translation as they have throughout history, and so translation is really the way in which most of us encounter the Bible. So that's the third part. Well, tell us about the alphabet. Uh, I, I think a lot of people would not even think about that. The words are there. The English is there on the page. You've taken yeah. it back to kind of to square one. What, what is significant about thinking about the alphabet behind the Bible. Yeah, again, it's one of those things that we take for granted, and we thought, well, what if we didn't take it for granted? And so we asked some questions like, well, what do we know about its origin? And we don't know as much as we'd like, but it does seem that writing is invented in part to um, preserve accuracy. So we give a quote from an ancient king from the ancient Near East who who essentially credits himself to something ancient kings sometimes did. They credit themselves with inventing things. <laughs> and he's, he claims to have invented writing. He says, because I gave a message to one of my messengers to take to another king, but he found it, I think the term is, he says it was heavy in his mouth, by which he means the message was too long, too hard for him to remember the whole thing. So he writes it down. And in that you see, you see um, writing connected with accuracy and also with authority. Um, listeners may not know, but our word author, of course, is in the word authority, and that goes back to Latin, actually. And so authoring something has to do with authority. And so in writing the Bible, it gives a certain authority to the written form of it that it may not have had in an oral form in the same way. So the writing is really important. And then beyond that, you can also think about places where the simple sort of mechanics, you might say, of the alphabet have influenced the biblical writers. What do I mean by that? Think of an acrostic poem. An acrostic is where you start with the first letter of the alphabet and work your way all the way through to the end. There are a number of acrostic um, poems in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, for example, and those can get lost in English translation, but they have a kind of potency to them in the original language, right? And you get the sense that you're getting the full story by the time you get to Z, right? And then think about the way that Jesus says in the book of Revelation, he's the Alpha and the Omega, right? The beginning and the end. So lots of little things like that where appreciating the fact that we shouldn't take writing for granted actually helps us appreciate not only the fact that we have a Bible to read, 
but actually some of the things that we read in the Bible as well, if that makes sense. In, in terms of the writing uh, of, of the Bible initially, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, can you talk about that? I mean, there are many different writers, yeah. and, and then, of course, there wasn't just one copy. There, it was copied uh, but way before, of course, we had anything like the printing press or any right. of those things. So, yeah, if you could, right. these are, again, these are the kind of things I don't think we normally think yeah. to. That's right. We, you know, we have a tendency to think the Bible must have just been all written together and then packaged, and it's been that way ever since. But of course, no. You know, the books are written by different people. So at the Pentateuch, you have Moses being the main author. But then after that, you know, in some cases, we, we're not sure who the author is. Um, and at some point, the Jews compiled the Old Testament and put it together. We know, for example, in the Old Testament, we hear the account of Josiah discovering the law. You know, in the temple in, mm -hmm. his, in his reign, and so you can think of there actually the Bible being lost for a period and then rediscovered within Israel's own history. By the time you get to Ezra, Ezra has a pretty formative role. It, it seems like from the Old Testament itself in putting the Old Testament together for us. But again, we don't we don't know all the individual writers of the Old Testament. Um, they don't always identify themselves. And there's so many books, and they're written across such a great span of time. With the New Testament, things are a little bit different because it's written in a much shorter period of time. You know, it's written within about 100 years of itself. And there, the early church has preserved for us very traditional authorship for most of the books. So, you know, think of all of Paul's letters have his name attached to him. Hebrews, of course, is the one where it's, mm -hmm. you don't have his name. And there's some debate about that in the early church, and today most scholars don't think Paul wrote it. Um, but the Gospels, the, tr the titles for the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all ascriptions of those traditional authors. And what's remarkable is that we don't really have any variety about those titles in, in the ancient church. And so my opinion is that those are almost certainly, uh, that those are the most likely candidates for the authorship of those books. But yeah, the, the Bible is written over you know, thousands of years and compiled and collected and, um, and, and, you know, the book is the story of the whole process to getting to us. But, yeah, it's written by numerous authors over a long period of time. And then the subject of copying, and obviously, uh, well, for, for those that are a little bit familiar with it, there were scribes. It's in the title of your book, Scribes and Scripture. People copied it. And, I mean, what a painstaking process that would be by hand to, to copy it. And you think how easy it would be to... Uh, I think even <laughs> use the word a sleepy scribe. I mean, to yeah. to to yeah. to uh, fall under the uh, influence of drowsiness or or mm -hmm. whatever a mistake of some yeah. sort. And, and isn't that where perhaps the idea of error could could occur to people? Well, maybe it was uh, there were copying yeah. errors. Maybe something wasn't even intentional. Yeah, that's right. So you know, once a, once a book is written, then it has to be copied, and again, that happens over millennia. And um, as, you, as you say, copying is hard work. Um, there's a famous, uh, uh, often repeated line in medieval manuscripts where the scribe who's copying the manuscript gets to the end and he leaves a note about himself and he says something to the effect of, as a traveler rejoices to see his home country, so the scribe rejoices to see the end of a book. Mm. And it just gives you some sense of, yeah, this is hard work. Um, you know, there's another, another saying we find sometimes where the scribe says, though the hand that wrote this is rotting in the grave, the words will last forever. And that also gives us some sense of the poignancy with which they saw their work, right? Especially in the Middle Ages, in, in, the, in the context of the monastery. But yes, copying by hand is hard. Um, and if you, you know, if you sit down and try it, if you try to copy out something like the Book of Romans, you will make mistakes. And the scribes that copy the Bible certainly did make mistakes. And so scholars today work carefully with the full range of our evidence we have in the original languages, Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New, and then translations of both of those into Latin and Syriac 
for example, in Greek for the Old Testament. And scholars use the full range of that information to try to recover those original words as best we can. Um, but I think, I think it's fair to say, overall, scribes did a very good job. If they hadn't, we wouldn't be able to even identify the books of, of the Bible as those particular books. You know, if every scribe thought it was his job to edit Matthew's gospel however we wanted, we probably wouldn't even be able to identify it as Matthew once he got done. Um, now, again, that's not to say that there haven't been intentional changes as well. Uh, something like the ending of Mark has probably been added intentionally later on. Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, even, we see some of these intentional changes, and those are all things that we talk about in the book. Well, I do have to move along to the canonization of the Bible, but one more question. What for you, what for uh, Dr. John Mead, is an an evidence or evidences that, because this is obviously a human book, but it's also, it's a divine book. It's God's word. Evidences that God was overseeing the process and that he has preserved his word through all of these human instruments. Yeah. I think you can see it in two things. One is the amount of evidence that we have for the text. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the best attested documents from the ancient world. And I, as a New Testament scholar, I'm used to saying the New Testament is the best attested. But Dr. Mead has corrected me over the last few years and said, actually, there's a, there are probably as many manuscripts uh, of, the, of the Hebrew Old Testament as well, thanks to things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and what's known as the Cairo Geniza Collection in, in Cambridge. Um, and so that's one thing, the sheer, sheer quantity. And then I'd say the overall quality. Uh, the fact is that in most cases, we're not really in doubt about what the original or earliest text says. Um, and so, yeah, I think as a Christian, you you can look at that and say, well, this is what we might expect from God if he wants his people to have his word. Well, the book is Scribes and Scripture, the amazing story of how we got the Bible. Uh, one of these three major divisions in the book, the second, uh, is the canonization of the Bible. Dr. Gurry, we just, uh, you just gave us a bit of an overview of the writing and copying of uh, the scriptures, but the, now the canonization of the Bible. What does canonization even mean? Well, it has, has nothing to do with civil war uh, warfare. <laughs> we can start there. <laughs> Get that out of the way. That's right. It's spelled C-A-N-O-N, so only one N in the middle. And um, it, it essentially, a canon comes from the Greek word kanon, where we get the English word from, and it, and it starts its life meaning something like a measuring rod. It's, it's something by which you can measure other things by. And so think of it in this way. The canon of Scripture is the, that list of books by which everything else gets measured, okay? And in particular, by which our theology, our doctrine gets measured. So the reason why Christians have cared about which books belong in the Bible, which, which books are canonical, is because they wanted to answer the, the bigger question, you might say, of what should we believe, right? And what books should we use to determine what we should believe? So that's essentially what the canon is. It's, it's a list of authoritative books. When it comes to the Old Testament, there are essentially two criteria that compete throughout church history, at least in the West. The one criterion is what books did the Jews accept as mm. canonical? Mm-hmm. Okay, and the Protestants take that line um, in the Reformation, and there's early precedent for that. In fact, some of the earliest precedent we have is for that view. Then there's another view, though, that gets um, held up by somebody like St. Augustine in the 4th century, who says it's not just what the Jews accepted, but also what Christians have read. And, and that simple difference okay, between what Jews have accepted as canonical and then what Christians later sometimes read as canonical, that explains the difference between your Protestant Old Testament and your Catholic Old Testament. The Catholic Old Testament is bigger and includes what we call as Protestants the Apocrypha, what they call the Deuterocanonical books. So that's, that's in a nutshell. Okay? There's obviously a lot more to it than that. But that's the basic difference between, say, a Protestant Old Testament and a Catholic one. 
And it comes down to those competing criteria. For the New Testament, then, I think the simplest criterion that the church worked with was they asked themselves which books that we know about okay, have apostolic authority attached to them. And so when it comes to the Gospels, there's never really any doubt about the four canonical Gospels as we know them. Um, they are accepted from the second century and consistently from then on as those four and only those four, even though there were lots of Gospels running around, you might say, mm-hmm. in the second and third century. Yeah, and some of them <laughs> still keep, called, popping up, keep popping right? up, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. The Gospel of Thomas, people may have heard of. Uh, the Gospel of Judas was a big, you know, big front page news story about 10 years ago or so. So, yeah, that's the basic principle. And some of the books, it took them a while. Um, books like what we call the, the small Catholic epistles, which just means Second and Third John and Jude and Second Peter, uh, took some time for the church to recognize. And uh, so just circling back for just a moment, uh, the, the Protestant Bible, I think, had, well, obviously has 66 books. The Catholic one, Roman Catholic, I think 73. The Orthodox Bible, a bit more than that. And, and, yeah. and so um, the, the, the criteria then, say the Protestants would use, would not allow the books that the Roman Catholic Church has put in. They, they, the criteria yeah. is obviously different. That's right. And, and what, what readers will find in, in more detail in the book is um, we, we go through, we explain how that difference comes about and comes to a head, especially in the Reformation. So the Reformers really said, when it comes to the Old Testament canon, let's accept what the Jews accepted, right? Mm-hmm. That's the foundation for the birth of the church, right? And so there's no evidence that that the Jews accepted the wider Old Testament canon that the Catholic Church accepted. And importantly, until the Counter-Reformation, the Council of Trent, okay, which responded to the Reformers, this was not a settled issue in the Catholic Church either. Um, in the 14th century, John Wycliffe, his Bible, which listeners may know the name Wycliffe, uh, Wycliffe's Bible translates the larger Old Testament canon okay, into English from Latin, but very clearly in the, deduc- in the introduction explains that these deuterocanonical or apocryphal books are not on the same authority as the other ones, right? That goes all the way back to Jerome and goes back even before Jerome. So the point is to say it was not a settled issue until the Reformation. That's why it came to a head in the Reformation, because they hadn't resolved the issue in the Middle Ages. And so it was still very much a live issue then. And as the reformers said, no, we're, we're, we should only accept books that were accepted by the synagogue, okay, by the Jewish synagogue, the Catholic Church had to then respond and ended up anathematizing anyone who disagreed in the Council, in, in the Declaration of the Council of Trent, which means, in fact, that they, you know, I don't know how they, I'm not an expert on Roman Catholic theology, but if you apply that anathema retroactively, it means they anathematize the people in their own church. And when you say anathematized, that's a, let them be accursed? That kind that's of right. Thing. Yep. That's it. It's an excommunication term. Well, and moving along, and our time is is going quickly, and thank you for uh, boiling this all down for us. The book is Scribes and Scripture, the amazing story of how we got the Bible. It's all in there. The translation of the Bible is the third major piece that you unfold for us, and uh, I'm wondering if you can talk about that a bit. Uh, how was the Bible originally translated? I mean, there's various languages and then also at the same time, for us today in 2022, how can we know there are so many translations if we look? Uh, we, we might be, of course, just more inclined to use the one that's used perhaps from in our church. Yeah, that's right. So I think there's a couple of things that, and, and translation I have to say is one of my favorite topics because it has, there's such a rich history to it. And maybe we should start again by trying to not assume anything, right? And that is why translate the Bible at all? 
for for most of our listeners, I suspect they've never even thought that. Of course, you translate the Bible, and if they think that, that's actually because they they are Protestants and they've been influenced by this long tradition in Protestant theology. That of course we should translate the Bible, but that was not something that could be assumed at the time of the Reformation. There was opposition to translating the Bible, but the reformers said no. And, and their argument is actually quite interesting. They said because the Old Testament was written in the language of God's people at the time it was written, okay, Hebrew, and then because the New Testament was written in the time in the language of God's people at the time it was written, which is Greek, that shows us that God wants His people to have the Bible in their own language. If He didn't, He would have just kept Hebrew all the way through. <laughs> you see, but <laughs> right. because He inspired the New Testament writers in a different language. That proves to us that we can put the Bible in another language altogether so that God's people can read it. So the first thing to say about translation is that we should be really thankful that there's a long precedent of translation in church history. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't take it for granted because not all religions want to translate their own scriptures, uh, their own holy books, or can. If you think about Mormonism, okay, Mormons do not have access to the so-called golden plates anymore, even if they wanted to produce a new translation of the Book of Mormon, they would not be able to, right? So we should be thankful not only that we have the material we can translate from, but that we have this theology in place that gives us good reason to as well. So that's sort of maybe the first thing I would say about translation. And then to your question about, you know, why do we have so many, mm-hmm. which one is the best? The, the short answer to why we have so many, I mean, we give about, we give several reasons in the book. One though is because they sell frankly. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean to be crass. No, about it's just it. matter of fact. But that's just a matter of yeah. fact. If people did not buy new translations, publishers would not bother to translate them. But they also do it because they save money doing so. Um, at the beginning of your Bible, you know, Bible you hold in your hand, physical Bible, if you look at the copyright page, which I'm sure you've never read, okay, but if you were to read it, you would notice that in there it says something to the effect that you can quote up to so many verses hmm. before you need to get permission to do so. And usually it's about 300 to 500 verses. Hmm. And at that point, once you pass that number, then you've got to write to the publisher and ask for their permission, and they may well charge you some royalties for that, right? Um, what that means then is a major publisher that's producing, say, a commentary series or Bible study material, okay? For churches, if they're quoting the Bible in that, which they probably are, at some point they're almost certainly passing that that mark, and they're going to have to get permission and may pay money, and that that's going to affect their bottom line. So most evangelical publishers have their own Bible translation. Um, Zondervan uh, shares the copyright with the NIV. Uh, e, um, Crossway has the ESV. Uh, let's see, Broadman. Holman is a Southern Baptist publisher that they now have the CSB. Okay, and we could go on. Not every publisher, but lots of them. Tyndale House is another one. They have the NLT, New Living Translation. And, and that's a simple reason why, because mm-hmm. it saves them money. So that's one reason why we have so many. In terms of which one is the best, I think the most important thing to say is, today, any mainstream evangelical translation is going to be very good. And it's really not a choice between good or bad, so much as it is a choice between good and slightly better. <laughs> if I can put it that way. So we could go into more details as to what distinguishes them, but in general, that's something I always want to reassure listeners about, is that really we are blessed to have a lot of good translation. Well, you, your book describes in Scripture the amazing story of how we got the Bible, and just taking a look at that word amazing for just a minute, there were heroes, there were villains, can you shine a spotlight on perhaps a bit of that aspect, uh, that, sure. that, that intrigue of how we sure. got the Bible? Well, let me give you, the, the I think, the most neglected heroes and then the least neglected hero. The most neglected heroes are the scribes that we talked about. 
we call them the unsung heroes mm. because most of them are nameless. Uh, we don't know who they are. In some cases, we don't. We maybe know the century in which they work, but that's about the best we can do, given how we date manuscripts. But they they did this tedious, often thankless job, and if it weren't for them, we would not, we, simply put, we would not have a Bible. So they're the they're I think the most important heroes, and they're the the easiest ones to forget. Probably the the hero who's the hardest to forget is <laughs> William Tyndale, mm. and and this is a man who just it's hard to say anything negative about him. Certainly as a Protestant. Um, he is a student at Oxford University. It is not a time in which the study of the Bible at Oxford is taken especially seriously. The study of theology is, but not necessarily the study of the Bible itself. And he really loves the Bible while he's there. And before long, uh, after graduating, he becomes a pastor and starts preaching and sees that people cannot really appreciate the sermons because they don't have the Bible in their own language. And he convinces himself that he needs to translate the Bible. He goes to London to try to secure the support of the archbishop there and can't even get a hearing. And he realizes after about a year that he's not going to get help from anybody in England. He leaves England for Europe, for the continent, and there, uh, away from home, translates the Bible. He doesn't even finish the first printing of his first translation because the print shop is raided by the authorities. <laughs> <laughs> and he has to flee and he does. And within a year, he's able to finish his New Testament and get it printed. And, uh, but, you know, it's not many years later than that. He is still working on the Old Testament when he's, he is finally arrested. Uh, he sits in prison for not quite a year. And there's an extremely poignant letter from him, which is the last thing we have from his pen. In fact, it's the only thing we have from his own hand. And in the letter, he is writing to a friend in this cold, dark prison in Europe, facing death. And he asks for two things to be sent to him. The first is warmer clothes because it's cold. Mm -hmm. And the second is he asked for his Hebrew books, his Hebrew Bible, his Hebrew dictionary, and his Hebrew grammar, so that he can continue translating the Old Testament. He never did finish translating it because he died before he could. But it's this extremely remarkable uh, letter. I think what's most remarkable about it is at that point in Tyndale's life, he has no reason to think that his work will succeed. You know, we know him today as William Tyndale, mm -hmm. this great, famous Bible translator yeah. who sets the stage for everything to come. But he has no reason at that point that there's a new bishop of London who's not any more amenable to what he's trying to do. The king of England at the time is still not open to his Bible translation. So his Bible is only being smuggled in. And as far as he knows, it's a complete failure. But of course, we know the history now in hindsight, and we know he was a tremendous success. And so I think his life is a reminder, actually, of the importance of faithfulness, even when you cannot see that, that, um, that a positive outcome is guaranteed, you know? <laughs> So, yeah. I did want to ask you, and, and write, I think it goes along with what you just said, you, you write, to fully appreciate the Bible's history and God's involvement with it requires a robust doctrine of providence. Yes. Can you talk about that's that? Where we, yeah, that's where we end the book, because most of the book is, is, is fairly historical in nature. We're talking about, you know, this person and this translation and um, how textual criticism works, and it's pretty much a historic, the historical record. But we really wanted to end the book by reminding Christians that, as Christians, we believe that God is sovereign over all of history, right? So think about things like the book of Esther and the way God's providence works in that incredible story, um, or the way he turns evil for good in the story of Joseph's life. And so we sort of take that and say, look, if God can do that, then certainly God can work through sleepy scribes, <laughs> right? Yes. He can work through church councils. He can work through the Protestant reforms. He can work through fallible translators as well, right? 
And so it's helping Christians to remember that our trust in the Bible ultimately lies not in the historical facts of the matter, although those are important and we need to think about them, but ultimately our trust in the Bible lies in our belief in God and his, his providential work in history. Any final thoughts? The more I think about it, the more I realize that we are really stewards of the Bible, and we will not be here forever, mm-hmm. and we have inherited the Bible from those who have gone before us, and it's our job to pass it along faithfully to those who come after us, right? And by living it, of course, as well, but, but also by knowing it, by, by, um, by knowing how we got it. And so I think that's something I really hope readers are left with when they finish the book, is, is just a deep appreciation for the fact that we have the Bible and a willingness to want to pass it on faithfully to the next generation. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Peter Gurry, professor and co-director of the Text and Canon Institute at Phoenix Seminary and co-author of Scribes and Scripture, the amazing story of how we got the Bible. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Erica Anderson on why families and teachers are involved in public education. God has a place for all of us in the world. Like we all have our different, you know, spots that he's going to use us in the world. And certainly he calls these Christian teachers um, to be where they are and to minister to the kids in their class that might not have any of that at home. And not that they are talking about faith in the classroom, but just being there and having the Holy Spirit as a part of their life and loving on them in the name of Jesus. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.